Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, Swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere, online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. (coughs) Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Some of the world's most innovative beauty and fashion companies reach mobile users through Attentive, the personalized text messaging solution trusted by over 1,000 brands. Get powerful results from text messaging and over 25 times ROI with Attentive. Request a demo today at attentivemobile.com. 
we have to accept that reality, we have to think about change, and then let's be positive and focus on the opportunity we have right now and the solutions we have right now to create change. Do you think that inevitability, that actually the industry and consumerist culture in general means that we just have to shrink the size of the economy and the size of the industries that kind of drive consumption? I don't look at it, that question specifically with regards to fashion, but I do look at it with regards to capitalism in general, the kind of overall obsession with GDP and financial growth as our like main metric is at the heart of the problem. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF podcast. This week, I sit down with the model, activist, and now author, Lily Cole, who talks to me about her new book, Who Cares Wins? Reasons for Optimism in Our Changing World. Now, the book covers a wide gamut of topics, exploring how capitalism and consumerism are shaping the world around us, and Lily's observations are particularly relevant in the context of the coronavirus crisis. Here's Lily Cole, Inside Fashion. Hello, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to BOF Live. Uh, On this episode, I am thrilled to have with me a face that I first got to know when I first started sneaking into fashion shows here in London about a decade ago. Uh, Lily Cole was an up-and-coming model in those days, and she's gone on to have uh, a, a career in the fashion industry, but in, a, in addition, um, has become an activist of sorts, um, has studied uh, at some very, very well-known universities, and has recently published a book, which is called Who Cares Wins? Reasons for Optimism in Our Changing World. And so I'm delighted to have Lily here with us today. Welcome, Lily. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. (laughs) Nice to see you too. Um, Of course, we're going to talk about your book, but you have such an interesting backstory uh, that brought you into the fashion industry. So I thought we could actually start there and then get to how you decided that writing a book was um, kind of something that you wanted to do and how it connects back to some of your experiences in fashion. But so to begin with, do you want to just tell us i'm sure it's you know everyone has their origin story and i'm sure you're you're tired of telling it but uh, <laughs> you know how, how did you first get into this weird and wonderful industry sure so i was i grew up in london um and i was 14 years old just doing my thing hanging out with my friends in central london uh, one evening and a scout from storm agency called benjamin hart came over to me and he was very good looking he was a model himself and so I was very suspicious why this very handsome older man was approaching us um and then he talked about the agency and did I want to model and gave me business card um and within a year I was kind of flying around the world and doing I mean even that year I started working but the next year things really took off what was the moment when you feel like you really realized that you know, you were going to become quite a big deal in the fashion industry was there you know specific opportunity that you you kind of yeah it's probably a few moments when i was 16 i um no when i was sorry when i was 15 i was in new york and i opened anna sui show and i just shot a campaign um an editorial with steven mizel and at the time i'd never heard of him you know i didn't know anything about fashion so i didn't i didn't know what the meaning of, of that was um but I, when i was in new york for for the show i could kind of sense the buzz around 
buzz around him and his work and the fact that I'd worked with him. Um, and so I got a sense of it then. And then I also remember another moment when I was in back in London um, and I was I was on a motorbike going between shows, which, you know, when, when, as you'll probably know well, when models are doing tons of shows, they, I was trying to fit like five in a day sometimes. And so I was getting a motorbike between the shows so I could make them. And I had this moment on the back of this motorbike, probably 15, 16 years old, going through central London and seeing my face on the side of these red buses. And I was just like, whoa, that's so, it was like quite, made it feel real in a very surreal way. How I went from fashion into writing a book, which is obviously a a big jump but I do start the book writing about fashion and how the experiences I had in fashion took me on a journey a long and winding journey that I'm still on um, and which the book is a product of so after a few years working in the fashion industry I started to become more and more aware of um, some of the challenges with different supply chains I was made aware of a few of the companies I was working with that they were having potentially like very damaging impacts on the people or, or the environment within which they're working. And I started working with a charity called the Environmental Justice Foundation, who I still work with, who drew my attention to cotton and how cotton farming can be really destructive. And I started to feel very kind of conflicted, I guess, um, because I felt quite responsible for what I was advertising and who I was working for. And I decided instead of focusing on the negative, which, you know, of course we can, I wanted to focus on the positive and the fact that there are different ways that supply chains can be set up and managed that can be incredibly positive and that um, there is such a thing as, you know, sustainable fashion and fair trade. Um, and so I started working either with companies or founding companies or with NGOs looking specifically at kind of positive supply chains. Um, the first example was when I went to Botswana and I met these women who were hand making really incredibly beautiful jewelry out of ostrich eggshells and we just set up a kind of simple trade initiative to try and get those sold in London um, with all the money going back to the community. I then went to India to look at how um, a carbon neutral organic cotton t-shirt can be made from the organic farm all the way through to um, uh, have, uh, sorry, dye plants where they recycle the water. There, you're back. Hello. I'm so sorry. There's, I don't know what's going on with the extreme heat in London. Oh, yeah. My computer. So I've, I've now logged in for my iPad. So hopefully, it'll it's, be it's global okay, warming. But, it's all going to melt down. Our uh, internet's going to like yeah. crash on us. <laughs> I'm really sorry about that. Um, so you've talked us through kind of some of your key moments. I mean, and then you ultimately decided to leave the industry and kind of take a take a break for a while yeah so Imran just I don't know if you missed what I was saying but I was I completely missed okay. it okay yeah, so sorry. what I was saying was that I I kind of started with me the way way into fashion and then how that got me into looking at supply chains and then I tried to focus on like positive versions of creating products as opposed to the negative ones um so yeah sorry what was the what was your question so you know at some point you decided to kind of pause your modeling career, right? You just decided it wasn't for you. I mean, what, what, what happened? It wasn't like an absolute moment. It was kind of incremental that I was actually always doing modeling part-time. So even at the height of my modeling career, I was in school still and then I was in university. Um, so I was always doing it as a kind of, yeah, juggling act on the side. Um, I had other interests. I mean, I started acting uh, professionally when I was 17-ish. Um, having done stuff actually when I was a kid as a like kid actor actually um so I had all these other interests in me I wanted to go to university um I had this kind of social political 
ideas or projects. And so it wasn't that I was leaving modeling so much as I just didn't have that much time for it and less and less time. Um, and then coupled with that, I was becoming more and more picky about who I felt comfortable working with because I didn't want to promote brands that I felt, um, you know, would like didn't align with the, my values and what I was learning. And inevitably that meant I was doing less and less. And then at some point it was like, okay, well, I'm not doing any anymore. And I, I did stop um, absolutely for a while. Um, and then actually about a year ago, I was asked to do a friend's show and I was quite surprised by my reaction. I was like, actually, yeah, that would be kind of fun. And you're an awesome designer. Um, and so I've kind of got a slightly more open attitude now without doing it very much. Which designer was it? I did um, Simone Rocha's show. And then I also did Mc, uh, McQueen's show last year. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are, those are amazing brands. And I, I guess sometimes, um, you know, it just takes a little bit of a break to appreciate something that you, you once did so much. And there is, I mean, this, I can I talk about the supply stuff because that's from an environmental and social side, so important to me, but of course the like creative side of fashion I've always loved. And that's never, that's never left, you know, and I do have so right. much respect for the creativity in that industry. Um, so it's nice to find ways to to stay connected to that world for sure. Right, um, Lily. Let's talk about your new book. Tell us about where the book kind of came from, the idea for it. The book I was asked by Penguin four or five years ago if I would write about a project I did um, on the gift economy, where I set up an online platform that was connecting people to trade skills and services um, peer to peer for free to try and create a kind of community essentially like how do you drive community and can we use technology as a as a tool to drive community and I started writing about the research and the ideas that went into that project which was called impossible and that became a chapter in the book but in the process of, of writing it I thought actually there's a bigger narrative here I want to explore which is all of the different ways that people are trying to solve problems all of the different ideas and solutions that we have up kind of our fingertips if we want to think about solving problems um, which to me, the gift economy is a really important one, but not the only one. And so I tried to package together a more holistic view of how we can think about positive change. Yeah. I mean, it's the timing, as I said, was pretty incredible because, you know, in the in the kind of very upfront, you note that, you know, the book is coming out at a time when everyone is starting to think about, you know, how we might reinvent and reset kind of this world that we're living in on so many dimensions. You know, how, how do you think that, you know, the current context kind of amplifies or makes even more important some of the core messages of the book? I mean, of course I'm biased, right? Because it's my book, but mm -hmm. I, um, I do genuinely think that the ideas that the book is talking about are so essential to talk about right now. Um, whether that's my book or other books, it's like we have to be having these conversations. The, it feels to me that one of the things that's been missing in recent kind of mainstream narrative around COVID is the fact that COVID is a consequence of our environmental situation. Very clearly, all the scientists are in agreement about that. 75% um, now of new infectious diseases are zoonotic. They're passing from animals to humans at an accelerating rate because of the fact there's less and less wild space. There's less and less biodiversity and because of our intensive animal agriculture systems. So the same, the same structural systemic problems that are causing the climate crisis are also causing things like COVID-19. And to my mind, unless we are brave enough to start thinking about how we address systemic change, we're going to have to keep facing different crises that scientists 
have been predicting for decades and are still predicting are around the corner. Um, so for me, it feels like an important wake up call for change. Um, and the good news is, I mean, that's very scary, but the good news is there are lots of trends going in the right direction. There are lots of kind of ideas that I think are very promising, both on a political and a personal level. And in the book, I'm trying to capture a variety of those ideas and solutions. But of course, there are other ones, you know, that I haven't, I haven't looked at. Um, and to my mind, now is the time to be, to be looking at solutions and saying, okay, we need to recognize we need to make changes. The IPCC, you know, two years ago told all global leaders they had to make massive systemic change within 12 years. Otherwise, we face even more dramatic risks and crises. Um, so we have to accept that reality. We have to think about change. And then let's be positive and focus on the opportunity we have right now and the solutions we, are, we have right now to create change. Yeah. It's interesting because um, th there's so much covered in your book, but I could certainly pick up on, as I was uh, you know, leafing through it, some of the themes that may have come from some of the time that you spent working in fashion. And I thought maybe we could kind of double click on some of those themes. You know, the, the first one that I wanted to focus on is the chapter that was called um, The Power of Money, Can We Shop Our Way Out of a Crisis? And there is actually throughout your book, this con you're constantly raising the topic of consumerism mm -hmm. and, you know, our consumerist culture. So for, you know, for an industry audience that you're speaking to today, you know, both on the live chat and on the podcast where this will be broadcast later of people who kind of work in fashion and believe in fashion. I mean, how do we, as people who work in this industry, reconcile that, yes, fashion is part of consumerist culture, um, but that simply buying more things and, you know, some of the, the kind of greenwashing and, and, and the tactics that some of the, the brands in our industry use to get people to think that they're you know, consumption behavior is okay is actually a bit of a, a bit of a ruse, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm looking at the in the in the book often at different sides of different arguments, and one of the tensions in the book is, can we change the system from within versus do you need to change it from without? So, a lot yeah. of the book is is kind of hoping we can change it from within. I mean, how can we make capitalism fairer, more sustainable? Um, can we evolve the existing industries and systems we have? And then I look kind of conversely at what we can learn from indigenous communities and alternative systems at the end. Um, so that the first half of that narrative, which is can we change it from within, which I'm still hopeful we can, um, is where any industry like fashion has an important role to play. Um, and you would have a kind of maybe polarization between environmentalists who would some who would argue we just need to stop shopping period you know and that fashion should just stop making new things and we should just only buy second hand um and there are some environmentalists advocating that and saying that um and then you'll have others that say no like we have to we have to accept the reality that people want new stuff um and in many cases need new stuff you know especially if you're talking about you know eyewear underwear things that you know don't recycle forever um that if we're going to be making new stuff we have to make it in a better way and that we have to kind of innovate our existing desires and our existing systems into better versions of themselves. And I try and look at both sides of that debate, and I think probably the real answers will be a combination, that there is a practical need for new fashion, new stuff that we don't want to shut down entirely. So whilst we're making new stuff, can we make it in a better way? Um, and then at the same time, can we think about clever business models that don't require people just buying new stuff every 10 minutes as a 
to make them economically sustainable. And I think there has been a rise in, I'd be interested in your thoughts too, but from my perspective, working in the kind of sustainable fashion space now for over 10 years, it feels like there's been a rise both in supply chain management, so like much kind of better understandings of the impacts of supply chains and needs to improve them. And also more and more kind of platforms that are thinking about new types of business models, circular business models um, that are driving sustainability in a different way. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, you know, some people say when you talk about circular business models, you know, I know there's some people that are actually quite skeptical of them because they say it kind of gives people the excuse Mm -hmm. that if they buy something and then it's, you know, it can be recycled or can be passed on to someone else, that that's an excuse to continue consuming. The thing that I I wonder about in in, in, in both of those solutions is they kind of both imply that we should buy less stuff you know and that involves almost by definition a sh- shrinking of the fashion industry um from a scale standpoint and i'm sure you know it's like a 2.5 trillion dollar industry and lots of jobs and and livelihoods depend on some of these clothes being manufactured so do you think that's an ev- inevitability that actually the industry and consumerist culture in general means that we just have to shrink the size of the economy and the size of the industries that kind of drive consumption? That's a big, big, but powerful and important question. Um, I don't look at it, that question specifically with regards to fashion, but I do look at it with regards to capitalism in general. And I spend a chapter of the book looking at kind of degrowth, slow growth. And there are a lot of kind of thinkers that would argue that actually the kind of overall obsession with GDP and financial growth as our like main metric is, a, is at the heart of the problem and that we need to be thinking about growth maybe in a slower way and also thinking about the other things that we want to grow, you know, happiness, health, um, environmental, uh, environmental sustainability, like what are the other metrics that we want to track alongside economic growth. In terms of the industry shrinking or contracting, um, yeah, that's the kind of the answer to that is in is in the answer to the bigger question around capitalism, which is too big a question for me to pretend I know the answer to. And I, that's why I explore both sides. But I would say that that is not the only solution at this point in time, that actually how we make things, making them better, like paying more for things, but making them much better quality and making it possible to repair and fix things and maybe even building repair and fixing into business models is a way that you can keep that industry in terms of the jobs and the amount whilst also not destroying the planet and also by the way fucking over loads of people in the supply chains um so for me it's about kind of quality rather than quantity and actually in a funny way loving fashion more loving material things more not less you know like the more we love stuff the more we respect objects and we respect the kind of craftsmanship and the the physical labor and the materials that have gone into making something the less wasteful becomes a society and the more likely we are then to, um, to, to kind of marry those two tension points together. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Yeah, I mean, the other day I shared on Instagram uh, a little kind of diagram that, you know, some organization in the sustainability space created with kind of comparing the metrics of wearing kind of an inexpensive coat from a kind of fast fashion retailer that maybe costs $50 and only wearing it a few times and comparing that to a jacket that costs $500 and being able to wear it for a much longer period of time, mm-hmm. um, many, many more times per year. And I shared it on my Instagram. And interestingly, I, I, people started writing back to me and it says, well, this pre-assumes that someone actually has the money to spend 500 pounds on a jacket and not everybody does and for some people the reason they're going to some of these you know um retailers that offer you know fairly cheap product that's not particularly well made that doesn't necessarily last and is not designed for multiple wears over many years because that's the that's the an economic decision for them as opposed to kind of a long-term values-based decision yeah and it's it's probably one of the most um tricky parts of this whole conversation is the is the reality of the fact that often more sustainable more ethical choices cost more um and it's something i look at again in detail in the book in terms of why that is politically and almost everybody i interviewed for the book from 
very kind of wide spectrum of um, positions almost all said that there's a kind of false economy we have where we're not pricing in pollution and we're not pricing in carbon and we're not pricing in the cost of doing things badly um, so that things can seem cheap but they're not cheap you know that phrase if um, if something's cheap someone else is paying for it you know both your if you're not paying people properly for their labor you're exacerbating inequality and you're keeping other people in poverty um, and if you're destroying the environment somebody else has to pay to clean up that cost so it's it's a false economy um, and I think of people like my my mum who grew up in the mountain in Wales um, with no money but would like the cost of clothes in her memory was higher at that point than it is now but there was an attitude that was very different you just wouldn't buy very much and you would reuse it and you'd fix it and it would last a long time when she actually when she moved to London made her own clothes because she couldn't afford to buy new so um, I'm just saying I guess I'm using that as an example to say that I don't think that um, just buying kind of fast fashion or cheap food is this is the only solution you know I think it's actually about like maybe shifting our mindset um, buying secondhand clothes, for example, is often cheap and cheaper. Buying something, as you're saying, like it doesn't have to be $500, but buying something once that's high quality, that's going to last you 10 years, actually is probably cheaper than buying over and over again. So I think it's, it's, it's tricky, but it's a little bit sometimes like a false economy um, when you dig into those numbers. Yeah, certainly on a per wear basis, if someone has the wherewithal to kind of think it through that way and say, actually, I'm going to wear this for much longer and I'm going to wear it many more times. Therefore, you know, each time I wear it, it's costing me less mm -hmm. on average than wearing a, a cheaper garment that I eventually throw away. I mean, one of the, the arguments you made in your book, which I, you know, I think is really compelling is actually there are costs in the way many of us behave when it comes to the fashion industry today. We're just deferring those costs to mm -hmm. the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't avoid those costs. And interesting, yeah. I, I grew up without much money. And I remember like early, when I was like probably 12 or something, um, one of those fast fashion stores opened near my house. And I devoured it. You know, it was so amazing that I could suddenly get all this stuff. Um, and like I'm just using that as an example to say if, if I'd known at that time if like somebody had shown me what the actual impact of those of those choices was really having which I was completely oblivious to um I think I would have made different choices and yes I probably would have then had a lot less stuff but I probably wouldn't have walked around naked you know I'd have just had to make peace with having less stuff you know and thinking about buying in a different way like from Portobello Market secondhand for example do you think, you know, based on the research in your book, that maybe the generation of young people that are kind of emerging now, the kind of very famous Gen Zs, that they actually think about fashion and consumption in the way that you wished you had back then when you first saw the fast fashion? Because there's kind of a split view on this. There's some people say, you know, the Gen Zs are like highly politically aware. They're aware of the climate. They grew up you know, with fear yeah. uh, around climate change. And it's kind of, you know, baked into who they are as a, as a generation. And then, you know, kind of the naysayers will say, well, they say they care about this stuff, but when it comes to their actual behavior, they're still buying these, you know, cheap clothes made in kind of you know, maybe un conscionable conditions by people who are not paid fairly in ways that are damaging to the environment you know what do you think of this generation that's coming up now 
I mean, I've read the surveys and the data that suggest that the younger generations do care more, like they care more whether brands have values, you know, um, they, that doesn't mean everyone cares. Um, it doesn't mean, as you say, that like what you, what you say you live and there aren't, there aren't contradictions. I'm sure there are many contradictions. Uh, yeah. But it does seem that there is a kind of bigger awareness in younger generations than there were, than there has been. And that gives me kind of hope that things are going in the right direction. And I think that showed, that's reflected by the fact that the industry is also shifting in that way. Um, and that, for example, when there was the scandal recently in the media about um, Boohoo paying people at less than minimum wage, I thought it was interesting that their share value immediately apparently dropped a billion plus because that just shows that actually the market valuation expects consumers to care, expects consumers to read that news, which is a lot of young people, because I think their audience is predominantly young, to read that news and to be put off buying into them as a consequence. And so that's quite a tangible reflection of the fact that people do care when they're given, not all, but a lot of people do care when they're given um, transparency and information. And another thing I'll throw in that a friend of mine said to me on this point, because I've been talking about it a lot actually in recent days, about um, why you know like why more sustainable choices are more expensive and she was just like you have to also reframe the narrative it's like why have we created such an unequal society that makes it too expensive for many people because that's also part of the problem like why is it only a kind of certain certain like certain type of person can afford to buy better you know that actually if you think about inequality and the fact that we've got escalating inequality in our society that's also part of the problem um, doesn't simplify it, makes it in a way maybe more complex, but it shifts the focus from making consumers guilty to actually thinking about how do we create the political change we need to make our society more equal. Mm. Another theme that you explore later on in the book is about power and privilege. And, you know, that's obviously been a discussion that's been right at the forefront over the past few months as we've seen, you know, powerful um, people all around the world um, being called to account for some of their behavior. Uh, what role do you think the fashion industry has to play in this kind of wider conversation? It's a very you know, visible, powerful, influential industry that can really shift culture and shift some of the attitudes that you and I've been discussing today around consumption and you know, social responsibility uh, and each individual's personal ability to influence you know, the world in which we live. That's probably one of the reasons I find fashion so particular and interesting that um, it's like fashion is like every other industry in terms of, you know, analyzing its impact through supply chains and consumption and planned obsolescence and all that stuff. But what's fairly unique about fashion is the other aspect of fashion, which is what's fashionable, i.e. what is the kind of cultural zeitgeist we're part of that, you know, a hundred years ago thought that women shouldn't be showing their ankles and should have tiny waists or, you know, 500 years ago would kill a woman for wearing for wearing a suit you know um like what what is the kind of culture value system that we're reflecting through fashion um because that's much deeper and more uh, pervasive and affects than all other aspects of society and in that aspect i think yeah fashion has a really kind of critical role to play in terms of shaping our value systems around what are the, what is the culture we want to be part of what is the culture we want to grow um, and move towards and i mean it's not perfect but i think fashion's done a good job actually at championing diversity and kind of being open being at the forefront of a kind of open-minded progressive worldview in many ways um, so I see that as a real positive. And when it comes to sustainability, 
I, I'm only going off my kind of very subjective experience, but it felt to me 10, 15 years ago in the sustainable fashion space that it was a little bit like anti-fashion, that it certainly wasn't very fashionable, um, wasn't very cool. And I felt like in a bit of a niche working in that space. Whereas now it feels like it's much more fashionable and like most of the brands, a lot of people really want to talk about this. They really want to be part of these conversations because I think people get how important it is. Um, so that feels positive to me, that, that shift. Have you, would you agree? Would you say you've seen it go in that direction? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, 10 years ago when people talked about sustainable fashion, most kind of cool fashion people would roll their eyes yeah. a little bit and kind of imagine you know, what in Canada we used to call granolas, mm -hmm. you know, like people who wear, you know, hemp. And, you know, it was just this like very, very specific idea of what sustainable fashion means. You get an instant image in your head. But now I think the topic around sustainability and um, growing awareness of the climate crisis has made everyone really much more aware that, no, this is not really about, you know, a fringe issue that some small group of people is you know banging on about it's you know a, a proven scientific fact i'm actually we're all experiencing it right now here in london right like global warming um you know and 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 the and the shifts in you know the climate are becoming even perceptible at a human level now mm -hmm. and you talk in your book a lot about being a frog at the beginning you talk about the frog who's put in warm water uh, and the first is the frog who's put in boiling water and i you know, we're clearly been in warm water and it's been getting warmer and warmer and warmer. And so I think the, the, the awareness level now is there. I guess it's up to us now to figure out, you know, as an industry, you know, how we change so that now that it's no longer unfashionable to talk about sustainability, like how do we really integrate it into the way so many companies um, behave? So the awareness bit is there. But I think from a behavioral standpoint, from an actual operational standpoint, it seems like we still have a really, really long way to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, one, one of the things that, you know, I, I often talk to um, our team about is um, the, the role of design in sustainability, mm -hmm. because so much mm -hmm. of the decisions that are made in the design processes are ultimately what creates that, you know, it, you know carbon footprint down the road. Do, do you have any thoughts on that as you've talked to designers and various people for the book? Yeah, I think design has a really critical role to play because um, designers are often thought leaders and they're solving problems. And and arguably, I mean, actually, the company I have Impossible, we have a whole kind of design framework that we've worked on called Planet Centric Design. That's a kind of a response to what's known, you may know well, of user centric design, what's been the kind of dominant way of designing products for a long time, um, especially in technology is user centric. So how do you speak to a user's biases and needs so that you'll get them to click so that you'll get them to buy you know like how do you make things as convenient basically as possible has been the by and the large uh, methodology for a long time and shifting that to see the user as not an individual atomized thing but actually a part of community a, a part of this like living environment that we are connected to i.e the planet um is really important i think to put the beginning of the design process so that we don't so we design products in a solution-based rather than problem-based um, way. I was working, well, talking recently with Ellen MacArthur. I think they're doing quite interesting work looking at yeah, circular design and how do you design in a circular way. And an example, like, like an ex I'll give you a few examples. Like right now we are making, I have a company called Wise Glasses. Um, we 
produce the glasses using uh, bioplastic that comes from castor bean and it's 3D printing because that uses a lot less material than um, most glasses manufacturer cuts it out and then throws away a lot of plastic. Um, we've just designed face masks that hang from glasses to go with it and we're using offcuts from designers that I've asked, um, Simone Rocha right now and then we have another designer we're bringing on board next month. Um, so we're using waste of their fabrics, um, using organic cotton and we're employing um, we're employing uh, tailors in the UK who are actually out of work right now because the theatre industry is shut down. Um, I'm giving that as an example to say in that, in instances like that, the product can feel positive and it can feel like it's actually being a solution as opposed to a problem. Um, I worked on another product years ago, which I think was really, um, the sourcing was really amazing with WWF looking at the world rubber trade in the Amazon. Um, most deforestation, if not all, um, in the Amazon is, is economically driven. It's 90% because of animal agriculture. It's often local farmers who are trying to make a living on small-scale farms, making hard decisions about how they're going to feed their families. And the reality is that they'll often make more money by, the, by clearing the forests um, than they will by keeping the forests. And so our logic was, how do you pay local people to make a living from the forest? So you're economically incentivizing them to protect the forest. And we started working on wild rubber. Um, I mean, they already existed, but like scaling out wild rubber products. Um, so I designed trainers with the French company Vasia that have wild rubber in their soles of the shoes. We looked at wild rubber condoms, actually, which I was quite keen to get off the ground. Um, Vivian Westwood did a wild rubber dress with me um, and I did jewelry, too. And that was really exciting because that was an example of a product where the more demand you have, the more positive impact you have. It's it's like in most instances, you want people to consume less and reduce. But there are some right. there are some instances where it's like, actually, the more you buy this, the more good you're going to do. So I think fashion and all designers have to try maybe and think in that way, which is like, what is the impact of what I'm designing? And can that impact be positive so that the more successful this product is, the more positive the impact socially and environmentally? Yeah, it was really great um, looking at your book because, you know, right on the front cover, it talks about optimism. And I, and I love how it has this kind of solution focused approach. I thought before we go um, and open it up to questions, though, you know, I thought I'd ask you one last question, which is just around advice. You know, a lot of people who are watching and listening today, they either work in fashion or they want to work in fashion, but they really want to do so in a way that's consistent with their values and some of the themes that we're talking about today. Do you have any advice for people kind of earlier on in their careers who are looking, who are passionate about this industry, but understand kind of the damage that it can have on, you know, the people and planet and, you know, how they can engage with an industry in a positive and constructive way? Mm -hmm. I think the good news is it's a better time than it's ever been because um, not only, as we said, is, is sustainability more fashionable, but actually there are just a lot more options the glasses I just mentioned, this year is the first year we've been able to do bioplastic lenses because now there is a manufacturer making bioplastic lenses. That's one example of many that the supply chains around more kind of uh, mindfully produced products have grown exponentially and it's much easier now than it, than it used to be. Um, and I'd say in terms of advice, I mean, it's always great to do something you're passionate about because anything you try and do usually in life that you care about is hard work so passion goes a long way um and i think the main thing is just yeah just to be really like really you like don't let um what's that phrase don't let perfect be the enemy of good like it's impossible to make something perfectly and i think there needs to be some forgiveness with oneself that there are going to be some compromises along the way but really try your best to like research and find what is the best possible way you can realize your vision um so that i think 
that you will feel inspired and also you're more likely to last as a business because that's the way that the industry is going. Um, thank you, Lily. Uh, pleasure. It's been so nice. Yeah, so nice. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Congratulations on the new book. If anyone was looking for the book, once again, it's called Who Cares Wins? Reasons for Optimism in Our Changing World. It's by Lily Cole. Uh, I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Thank you for joining us. Please stay tuned for more episodes of BOF Live. Uh, I believe Tim Blanks has, a, has some exciting um, content lined up for later this week, and we have more sessions being revealed for next week. So stay tuned, and thanks again to Lily. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, learning materials from BOF Education. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, welcome to the Next Wave podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of lore.com. We want to bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're going to equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change.